1: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today, conversations about housing in our region and most cities revolve around gentrification as prices spiral up. When many people look back at the history of housing, they find the roots of our crisis in the government's role in redlining, mortgage discrimination, and segregation of the mid-century. But like Jim Crow, these policies were formally dismantled by the late 60s, and most histories stop there, with cities falling into crisis. Kianga Yamada Taylor stepped into that research vacuum about the 1970s with jaw dropping work that connects the frustrated dreams of the civil rights era to the disaster of the subprime mortgage crisis in our current era. Fresh off her MacArthur Genius Award win, she's coming up next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When Kianga Yamada Taylor was born, her parents took a month to come up with the perfect name. And then they declared their intention for her in an incredible announcement of her birth. They wrote in part The Taylor Collective wishes to announce a Marxist Leninist proletariat revolutionary has emerged in this historic epoch to aid in our struggle against capitalism, racism, sexism, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. Her name is Kiyanga Yamada. And you know, As she celebrates her MacArthur win as a socialist Princeton African-American studies professor and the New Yorker's most radical columnist, I'll be damned if they didn't speak it into existence. Taylor's groundbreaking book, Race for Profit, tells the story of what happened when redlining ended and capital began to flow into the inner city. She's also produced books on Black Lives Matter and the black feminism of the Combahee River Collective. And she joins us today to talk about her life's work. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. Very happy to be here with you.
1: I couldn't help. The name announcement was so incredible. When I read it in a profile of you, I was like, we've got to put this into the intro. Um,
2: Yeah, that is is quite an introduction into the world and, you know, today. But thank you so much. I
1: appreciate it. Um, In the 1960s and 1970s, uh, the problem with American cities was not that too many white people were driving up prices moving into black and brown neighborhoods, the urban crisis had nearly the opposite configuration. So can you tell us about the quote-unquote urban crisis of the 1960s and
2: 70s? Sure. I mean, the the whole notion of uh, an urban crisis uh, that develops really in the era after uh, World War II um, is really about looking at uh, the ways that African Americans in particular had been locked out of uh, not only the, the emergent spoils that uh, came about uh, through the war effort, but also through uh, the exclusion from the social safety net uh, that had been created in the United States in the 1930s. And a, a combination of those exclusions from both social provision from the state, as well as the kind of uh, boon to the private sector Uh, meant that cities uh, where Black people were concentrated uh, were undergoing enormous hardship uh, in terms of uh, not enough good-paying jobs. Jobs were moving to the uh, periphery, to the suburbs for uh, cheaper tax rates. Uh, uh, Their housing uh, was in a deplorable state. The U.S. government's policies from the 1930s had... Uh, privileged building uh, new housing in the suburbs um, and that resulted in the deterioration of housing um, in American cities. And so as African-Americans had continued to migrate uh, from uh, both rural areas but also from southern cities into northern uh, metropolitan areas, um, you know, they did not find the American dream that uh, earlier waves of immigrant populations had found Uh, in American cities. Instead, they found what I described quoting Malcolm X uh, was an American nightmare. Um, And that kind of exclusion and deprivation in the face of uh, enormous wealth and prosperity, uh, uh, what had been termed American affluence, uh, helped to instigate uh, a series of urban uprisings in the mid-1960s that finally created a Uh, or were an attempt to create, to force the uh, American government to, uh, for once, respond to um, issues of poverty, segregation, and exclusion that had defined much of the Black experience in in cities uh, over the uh, er several earlier um, decades. And so, you know, that conflict and those conditions um, were termed, uh, defined as an urban uh, crisis. But really, what it was, was a crisis of uh, American capitalism that was uh, having its greatest consequence um, in the, the, the lives of ordinary black people who were uh, city bound.
1: Yeah. And out of that crisis, the response um, by the United States is, well, on the one hand, the Fair Housing Act, and on the other, the HUD Act. So lots of people sort of use the Fair Housing Act as kind of one end of the uh, of the civil rights movement. You really ended up focusing on the HUD Act and how it worked in American cities. And you defined a kind of a, a term for what happened, predatory inclusion. So maybe you can walk us through that as well.
2: Sure. I, I think most people, including myself, were, you know, very familiar with the Fair Housing Act, it's kind of like the last was believed to be the last signature uh, legislation and the civil rights revolution of the, of the 1960s. Um, but I found, uh, discovered through, you know, my studies in graduate school, um, something called the Housing, Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968. Um, and I went on to discover that uh, this, in fact, was the last kind of big uh, um, uh, legislation Um, signed by Lyndon Johnson um, in August of uh, 1968. It was uh, four months after the uh, Fair Housing Act. And that this was really the first attempt by uh, the federal government to uh, help low income uh, working class black renters become homeowners. Uh, So the programs that had been created through the uh, Federal Housing Administration um, in the 1930s, uh, that made working-class white people uh, homeowners, that opened up the opportunity of homeownership uh, to working-class white people. Uh, of course, has now come to be understood as uh, uh, exclusionary and involving practices that have been described as redlining, uh, and black people were largely largely excluded from those programs, and so. In the late 1960s, motivated by the urban uprisings that I referenced earlier, um, the federal government opened up home ownership uh, to uh, working class black families under the idea. I mean, there were a couple of ideas. One was that uh, as Richard Nixon crassly stated in 1969 that if they own their own homes, they won't burn down uh, the cities, and so many Republicans who backed this legislation believed that this was an opportunity to give Black people a stake um, in uh, uh, American cities, in the the system more broadly uh, construed. I think it was also uh, as signaled uh, from the real estate industry that there was a market to be constructed out of the inner city. Uh, which is to say that the programs of the 30s that had incentivized the movement of white people out of cities into suburban areas had left uh, an abundance of housing uh, in American cities unavailable and un, uh, that, that was unused. And so this became an opportunity uh, also to turn black renters into homeowners and to take advantage uh, of that housing stock Um, and to create a new market uh, out of that. But one of the things that I look at is the way that the previous 34 years of neglect precipitated by government exclusionary policies degraded uh, the housing stock in uh, American cities. Uh, It meant particularly in black neighborhoods um, that housing was distressed it was old, there had been very little new building. And so now all of a sudden those conditions that had been created out of the exclusionary practices of the state were now used as evidence uh, to treat black consumers differently, that those neighborhoods were determined to be risky. Um, And so black people could now become homeowners uh, but it would be on different terms than had been available uh, to white people in the 1930s, um, and for me, that is is what was was constituted what I describe as predatory inclusion. Is that the failure to actually address and repair uh, the crises in housing created by uh, government disinvestment uh, over a, a three decade uh, period? Then meant that uh, black neighborhoods would. Uh, were seen as subprime, uh, or seen as as problematic in some way. Um, and because of that, they were compelled to pay more uh, to enter into the housing, to pay more to enter into uh, the housing market.
1: And it's amazing, because, you know, if you if you think about the local angle here, maybe the the Neighborhood that most defines this kind of movement in the Bay Area is West Oakland, where essentially most black people were allowed to live during that post-war period. And the real problem became that there was so much stress on the housing because it was so overcrowded. And then... You also had urban renewal, which destroyed a bunch of housing units as well. Let's call it 6,000 to 10,000 housing units in West Oakland. So that's the area in which these new home ownership programs uh, go to work. So not new homes out in the suburbs, but these houses that have been um, really heavily used during a period in which overcrowding was, um, I mean, was segreg- segregated housing was the, the norm.
2: Well, that, I mean, that was one of the things that I wanted to uh, kind of draw um, attention to was, you know, one that we often think of segregation as uh, just a, a, you know, an expression of the will of white people. Uh, Do white people want to live uh, near black people? Do they want black neighbors? Um, And, you know, that certainly is not unimportant in this discussion, but uh, I think that, you know, one of the things that I wanted to look at were the financial uh, routes to mm-hmm. segregation and understanding um, the economy that developed around uh, segregation. And this was key in the formulation of these, uh, of these programs was, you know, there was a willingness for the federal government to shift its policy. There was a willingness for the housing industry and the banks to shift their practice in the, the, the private sector. Um, but it was all done with the uh, kind of unspoken assurance that uh, a new housing market for black people could be built, but it had to be done so on a segregated basis. basis. Yeah. Um
1: oh, yeah. uh- got to leave it there. We're talking with Kianga Yamada Taylor. She's a Princeton professor, contributing writer at The New Yorker, and author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership. We'll be back with more with her after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Princeton professor, contributing writer at The New Yorker, and author of Race for Profit, How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership, among other books. And we want to hear from you. Do you have experience of HUD's housing programs during the 1970s here in the Bay Area? And what role should the government play in housing low-income people? Call now, 866 733 6786 That's 866 6786 We'd love to hear your story about HUD housing programs in the 1970s. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Professor Taylor, one of the things that's really fascinating about your book is showing how we tried to use sort of a colorblind market approach to solve uh, for low income housing without actually redressing the racism of the real estate industry itself. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you saw that playing out in the
2: 1970s. Well, I think this was this was a huge problem. Um, The idea that, you know, there's legalized racial discrimination in housing um, up until 1968 and then the law changes, and it's as if nothing ever happened, right? There's no effort uh, to uh, redress or repair um, the damage that had been done to the physical property uh, in Black-majority neighborhoods, but also uh, this idea that had developed. Oh, I think.
1: I think we'll be trying to get uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor back on the line. Um, One of the things that she was addressing in the book was just that real estate appraisal itself as it developed um, in the United States was actually based on excluding black people from uh, real participation in the housing market. And it really came through and was uh, institutionalized through American government policy. Like if you take a look um, at the FHA in 1934 uh, and the kind of underwriting guidelines that were used, they drew a lot on private uh, industry's sense of what properties were worthwhile and valuable and what properties uh, were not. And a lot of them actually lens right through the Chicago real estate industry, which had developed a pretty strict racial hierarchy in which Um, sort of Nordic people's property was worth a lot uh, and Mexican and black people's property was worth very little. And uh, when we can get Keongamata Taylor back on, hopefully she'll be able to tell us a little bit more about how that ended up coming through into the 1960s and 1970s, where we do see that real estate appraisal in fact continues to value uh, black neighborhoods and black homes um, at lower levels. Which then changes the equation for everyone about what home ownership actually means. If your properties don't appreciate, um, then it's a very different thing to promote black home ownership. Um, again, we'd like to hear from you. What was your experience of HUD's housing programs during the 1970s? We're talking with Kianga Yamada Taylor, who just won the MacArthur Genius Award. She's a Princeton professor and a contributing writer at The New Yorker. Uh, give us a call now, 866 866- 866 seven three three six seven eight six. That's eight six or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Uh Professor Taylor you're back. Um, just had to give a uh, short monologue on real estate that. appraisals development through the <laughs> Chicago School.
2: <laughs> okay, sorry about that.
1: Oh, no problem. Um, so, uh, love you to talk about that—the way that real estate appraisal has sort of systematically devalued black neighborhoods, and how that changes what home ownership means as a wealth-building vehicle.
2: Um, so, one of the things that um, you know I'm really sort of happy about with the Uh, with the book is the way that um, I really try to look at the practices of the appraisal industry, which I think um, until recently uh, have largely gone, um, you know, haven't been looked at as as much as uh, they need to be as a factor um, in, you know, these shaping public perceptions uh, Mm -hmm. that black people have a deleterious impact. Um, on, on home values. Uh, and so, you know, I come to the uh, conclusion that we really need to um, challenge this assumption that the promotion of single-family home ownership um, is the most important uh, or even possible way to end the racial wealth mm-hmm. gap because it assumes that uh, black, oh, black people owning homes um, has the same financial impact of white people owning homes when in yeah. fact uh, black houses, houses in black majority neighborhoods um, have been grossly uh, devalued. Uh, Andre um, Andre Perry from the Brookings Institute is one among several people who've done studies recently uh, that have showed that uh, homes in black majority neighborhoods, when controlled for everything else, quality of house and and neighborhood and all those sorts of things are devalued something to the tune of one hundred and fifty billion dollars less uh than homes of similar quality in white majority neighborhoods uh and so this is you know not only does this mean that uh home ownership literally functions differently uh for for black people more most often more like uh uh, debt accumulation than actually an asset accruing in value mm-hmm. uh, over time. But it should compel us to question one, the role of uh, home ownership in our society and why we have uh, allowed this to become uh, the vehicle through which we solve all of our uh, large financial crises, whether it's a healthcare crisis, whether it's trying to finance your child's. Uh, access to education, whether it's trying to have a dignified retirement. We have vested so much in home ownership, uh, taking care of that uh, instead of thinking about socially, um, how does our society uh, provide for that? How do we use our resources as a society to provide for those things, uh, to take the onus off of our own individual ability uh, to accumulate wealth in the form uh, of, of, of a house. And so, you know, these are, this is an opportunity really to think differently uh, about what social provision is, what it should be, um, and how for black people, home ownership is not uh, a viable road to ending the uh, racial wealth gap in the U.S.
1: And it's so so interesting because I don't think people quite realize how different the American mortgage really is. Like it's a specific instrument created through state intervention in the wake of the depression, and then sustained through the Cold War. And other countries don't necessarily do it this way. Uh, instead, mm-hmm. this has been the U.S.'s version uh, of wealth building for for the masses. I, you know, one of the questions I think your book really raises is, you know. Shows that there are just many, many ways that U.S. government policy can be turned against uh, black people, particularly when sort of paired with the imperatives of the private market. But you also seem to want to keep a major role for the state. So what kind of apparatus do you think would be necessary to keep U.S. government policy for housing working for black people?
2: Well, one of the the things that I thought it was important to um, kind of write about is I wanted to push back some on the Richard Rothstein uh, Mm -hmm. um, framework. Uh, Richard Rothstein, who wrote, you know, a very important book, The The Color of Money, um, but I think overemphasized the role of government uh, in creating segregation and in Uh, the uh, precipitous housing crisis um, uh, for African Americans in the U.S. And one of the things I wanted to look at was that it's not just a question of the role of the state, but it's really a, a question of the relationship between private enterprise and the state, uh, that is at the heart of these problems. When the federal government created its policies for the first time concerning housing in the 1930s, uh, as they often do, who do they turn to uh, to help craft these policies? They turn to the private sector. They you know, go to the housing and banking sectors and say, what are your best practices? Uh, what, how, what is your expertise that we can draw upon uh, to increase the production of housing? Well, in real estate in particular, its best practices have always been tied to racism and racial discrimination. There is not a single moment in the 20th century where the real estate and banking industries in the facilitation of uh, housing creation have not considered uh, uh, race, have not considered the exclusion uh, of black people as absolutely central Uh, to constructing, for them, a healthy housing market. Mm -hmm. And so for the state to then call upon uh, the private sector to shape its policies, help to essentially suture those racist best practices onto public policy. And so one of the questions that we have to ask is how do we get the private sector that continues to use race as a way to shape the market uh, as a way to, uh, 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 to imagine what good and bad neighborhoods are? Um, how, how do we get the market and the private sector out of the production of housing for ordinary people? Um, and that, you know, that's, you know, that it, it's, we are so far down this road of the public-private partnership. In the creation of housing, that it's almost impossible to imagine uh, not not doing so. And so, for me, the the role of the the, the government in this sense is um, that the state can play a huge role uh, on in terms of scale in providing housing, in creating affordable housing, in providing. Uh, uh, uh who needed as we once did in this country, public housing, which mm-hmm. turned into a dirty word, but is a word that we need to uh is is a word and a concept that we need to resurrect. The state has the capacity uh to create housing on the scale uh that we needed in this country we're in a in an insane housing crisis and have been for uh, decades where we have this mismatch between stagnant salaries and, and incomes for people and ever escalating uh, cost of, uh, of housing, not just in the mm-hmm. home ownership market, uh, but for rentals as well. And so the only way that we can get out of that mismatch is to use the power and the resources of the state uh, to provide housing. And what do you
1: – you know, public housing – became a bad word in part because the sort of maintenance structure that went into a lot of public housing broke down and public housing became in many places, not everywhere, but in many places, um, Mm -hmm. a place people didn't want to live. So from that history, what do you take as sort of the policy that would be necessary to sort of sustain um, public housing so that it didn't fall into disrepair
0: again? Well,
2: I mean, the disrepair uh, piece of that is so critical because it's, it gets at the heart of the influence of the private sector. Why did public housing so quickly fall into disrepair? A big part of that had to, deal, had to do with the poison pill inserted in the legislation at the behest of uh, the private sector, which was we won't create a separate budget line uh, for the maintenance, of, the maintenance and repair of public housing we will uh, we will draw the uh, income for maintenance and repair from the rents that are collected well what happens when the number of people uh, begins to shrink who are eligible uh, for public housing where you're constantly changing the rules of eligibility Uh, for who can live in public housing because the private sector is breathing down your neck saying, we don't want government housing to compete with the private market. We want the public housing to be the housing of last resort. Then you've driven down the number of people who can live in public housing, which means that you have driven down the resources necessary to maintain and repair um Public housing, and so the whole issue with disrepair and the concentration of of poverty uh, was um, uh, under the influence of the real estate lobby because they did not want a public sector competition in the private market, and so the policy you know again gets to decoupling the private sector uh, from the state in the provision uh, of housing and then coming up with common sense policies which is that the maintenance and repair shouldn't depend on the number of people living in the establishment it should depend on what is necessary to maintain Keep and it, repair yeah. a building right, right? right and that that isn't implemented in policy until the until the 1970s when it's much too late when the the public stigma attached to public housing uh, has already been set in stone.
1: I want to bring in caller V from Berkeley. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi. Um, my
4: feeling is, is that this is by design. I l- live in, in, and the design is to force the gentrification in black neighborhoods. The housing policy, I think, has fostered gentrification, and I don't think it's an accident because black neighborhoods were neighborhoods that had – we lived in the city. Those neighborhoods were close to public transportation. They were close to entertainment, and they were close to freeways, but now – but. Now those neighborhoods are being gentrified, and the people who built them, who created them, made them cultural, are now being pushed out and My feeling is that, as she is talking about, this was by design, this was the whole goal of urban renewal anyway was to move black mm-hmm. people out of choice
2: land
1: thank you v kanka
2: Yeah, I would say that you know. I, I don't, it's not necessarily by design, but it is the logical outcome of a kind of laissez faire housing market, where, which we have in the United States, uh, which is where there are no rules that regulate really uh, the entry of private money uh, to try to remake any properties or lands in ways that turn the the biggest profit, that make the most money. And so when there are no real rules governing that, um, and certainly no rules that defer to the housing needs of ordinary people, um, then this is the predictable outcome. And this is part of a uh, predictable pattern that has happened in cities over and over again, where space becomes, you know, ways that, uh can very quickly generate uh capital. I mean this is the the secret sauce to housing is buying low and and selling high. Um and I think that you know those practices have been in place in one form or another over the course of the 20th century and we're seeing their intensification uh now, but they've they've been called urban renewal, they've been uh called uh, urban homesteading, they've had different names, but it's been the same uh, kind of, of, of practice over and over again. And without protections uh, for uh, ordinary people, uh, then they are the ones who are constantly moved to the uh, periphery.
1: We're talking with Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who's just won the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. She's a professor of African-American studies at Princeton. And we want to hear from you. What was your experience of HUD's housing programs during the 1970s in the Bay Area? And what role do you think government should play in housing low-income people? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866 733 Six seven eight six. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email your questions and comments to forum at KQED.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more forum after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who's just won the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. She's a professor of African-American studies at Princeton. Something I really have been wanting to ask you uh, really for like a couple years now is how should we think about the current kind of gentrification discourse? Do you think that that's still kind of the most useful frame for what's happening in cities? Or does your work suggest some other way of talking about uh, or writing about thinking about uh, urban change right now?
2: Um, I mean, I, you know, I think that gentrification, like uh, a host of other words like neoliberalism um, comes to mind are are words that get used uh, a lot and probably to such a degree that they begin to
3: uh,
2: lose their meaning um, for people and, and they can come to Stand in for all sorts of of practices and things that people uh, rightfully want to point out that are uh, wrong or unfortunate in a city, but uh, may lose their uh, their uh, poignancy in in pointing out uh, specific uh, issues. I mean, I think that there are uh, tremendous issues that we face um, in in cities right now, and the. Uh, Moving out of poor and working-class people uh, is a huge one. The kinds of investments um, uh, that are uh, absorbing uh, housing, where you know you have multinational corporations and hedge funds uh, that are buying up all sorts of uh, uh, of housing to take them off the market to use them as uh, places to to hold on to money. Uh, is one aspect. I think the uh, uh, the climate crisis uh, is, you know, been seen abstractly, but I think in cities uh, is becoming a uh, understood as a different kind of uh, phenomenon. I think the recent flooding in uh, New York City and Philadelphia, Philadelphia, like downtown Philadelphia was underwater. Uh, I don't know if people realize that. I live in Philadelphia. Um, it It has created a different kind of urgency um, around these questions that I think we have assumed uh, are not necessarily urban questions or not necessarily questions uh, about cities. And so I think, if anything, gentrification helps to focus on um, a narrow but important aspect of Uh, uh, A certain thing that is happening in in cities, um, but not necessarily uh, the total picture of what you describe as change that is undertaking, um, that is being undertaken uh, in cities that I think is is multidimensional and uh, that, you know, we need to be able uh, to understand in different kinds of ways and not just a kind of singular focus. Um, on the issue of gentrification.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, around here, I think so often it's like sort of the cultural markers of gentrification Mm. rather than the sort of underlying market Uh, forces that have been unleashed on neighborhoods for, you know, decades. And then a coffee shop pops up and it's like the coffee shop probably wasn't one cause of gentrification. It was several decades of government policy interacting with these uh, private uh, companies in the real estate market. I want to add um, Pamela from Sacramento into the conversation. Welcome.
5: Hi, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, sure can, Pamela. Go ahead.
5: Great. This is an amazing conversation. I just happened to be in the car, and I turned this on, and I'm so um, excited to be having this conversation. And, you know, the young woman that won the fellowship, that's amazing. I can't wait to, like, talk to you in person. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I just want to let people know that I am a property manager by trade, and so I work a lot in low-income, you know, subsidized uh, units rental units. And, you know, when I was putting in the rents, I noticed, well, like, you know, the low income person would pay like 460 And then I had to put in the other money. I said, wait a minute, that's market rate. The other money came from the government. That's why it's called subsidized. So the developers mm-hmm. are actually getting their full market rate, by the way,
1: mm-hmm. number
5: one. Number two, they get incentives, tax credits, and everything to purchase mm-hmm. Uh, Or to rather develop "low" quote unquote low income rental housing, subsidized housing that we pay for with our tax dollars. But guess what? Those are all investments. Those are investors, like like the woman was saying, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hedge funds. You know, they invest in actual low income housing, and the reason why they make them look so beautiful is because guess what? It's a twenty or thirty year contract that our government makes with them, that they have to subsidize that for 20 or 30 years. And guess what? After that, they can go to market rate. So yep. we just paid off their mortgage, and black people have been paying off the mortgages of white investors for, you know, hundreds of years and still mm-hmm. continue to do it. So one of the solutions is to allow regular people to actually own those low-income uh, rentals and do them, in, you know,
1: Oops. Sorry, lost Pamela there, but I think we had just gotten to the point where we really that needed to great. to get. Yeah, that was a, that was a, incredible. Um, Pamela as a description of the mechanics of this uh, low income uh, industry mm-hmm. right now. You know, her, her suggested solution at the end there was that we would allow ownership or mm-hmm. we would promote ownership. But that's actually one of the things that your book really tries to grapple with, like. On a net basis, do you think that home ownership by low income black people is a good thing or is there something else that should be done instead?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's I I don't think it's a good thing. I think that um, this was tried. I mean, one of the you know, you can't write about everything in in these books. And the HUD Act was a huge omnibus bill that had many different programs, but one of them uh, was a a small kind of boutique uh, program that tried to encourage um, uh, public housing tenants to purchase their units. Um, And this was a program that actually got some traction uh, in Mississippi. Uh, uh, I think it was Mississippi alone uh, in getting, um, you know, poor black families to buy their public housing unit. Um, but again, for me, this this highlights how uh, ownership and home ownership is, is conceived of differently uh, for African-Americans in, in this kind of example um, than, than for white people. Because what does it mean for a black family uh, to own a, a public housing unit? I mean, that, that can't possibly uh, be any kind of pivot towards uh, uh, asset accumulation, towards wealth uh, accumulation uh, towards doing anything except stabilizing um, your your place to live, um, and so you know at at the end of my book, uh, the epilogue I, I think is is titled Against home ownership, <laughs> and the point isn't to uh, that housing discrimination is okay that uh, we shouldn't comment anymore about the gross disparity between black homeowners and white homeowners, but is to really look at what home ownership is supposed to, the work it is supposed to be performing in our society and to suggest that perhaps our society could perform that work um, and not burden uh, the individual with accumulating the necessary wealth to sustain themselves. That if college education were available and accessible to people without going into enormous debt. If you faced a healthcare crisis, uh, that that healthcare itself was available was a public, publicly provided good. Uh, if retirement, you know, you were guaranteed uh, a, a dignified retirement. If all of these things were taken care of socially, would we be so individually invested? Uh, in owning our own home. And, you know, I think part of this is the misconception that, oh, people own their own homes and they stay there forever. They don't. Uh, Americans on average move every five to six years. The, the home is seen as, as, as an, an investment that you can cash in on, um, that, you know, you can uh, uh, use in, in that way. And, and what I'm suggesting as a provocation uh, is not that discrimination is fine, but can we think of a different kind of way to organize our society so that we are not so vested uh, in home ownership individually as a way to circumvent what otherwise might be social provision?
1: Yeah. I um, want to get to a few comments. Um, just want to say one thing. It seems like as long as the real estate appraisal and real estate markets, generally speaking, make prices go up when white people move in and prices go down when black people move in, that it just seems fundamentally unfair to continue basing uh, wealth in America on that system as long as it has those dynamics. Um, Uh, John uh, writes, Professor Taylor's description of how the government should be proactive in its role in public housing makes me think about progressive demands of the infrastructure plan being considered Mm. by Biden. Um, Mm -hmm. Sean writes, I live in Hunter's Point and I see a lot of homes around us only recently gaining value as developers move in to build on formerly industrial lots and bring, quote unquote, new residents into the community. How much are market forces, such as what people are willing to pay for a home in this or that neighborhood, a factor in holding down prices in African-American communities? Um, I'm, not,
2: I'm not sure. I fully. Can you repeat the last part? Yeah, now? sure. I,
1: I think the question was basically, um, how much is this like the market? Let's let's phrase it like this. How much is this the market and how much is this racism? If those two things can be disentangled
2: oh and holding prices down yeah i mean what is what is the market like this is you know people we we think of this idea cuz it's promoted by the, the the private sector and you know the government itself that the market is this kind of freestanding thing that you know is just determined by supply and demand and and that's that's not true the market is a reflection of what we value you know the market is uh, in many ways you know it's a reflection of our society um, and so it's impossible to disentangle uh questions of race and and uh how race factors into what is considered valuable i mean to to this day the most valued real estate in the single family home market is the white exclusive neighborhood and this is why uh, you continue to have hysterical reactions to uh, um, uh, over zoning issues and uh, over the placement of multifamily dwellings and uh, not just you know single family markets but in proximity to white neighborhoods um, and and this is it's impossible to uh, extract the the questions of uh, race from Uh, how those market dynamics and reactions uh, are shaped because they are what is actually constituting um, the market itself. Like what we conceive of as the good neighborhood, as the bad neighborhood um, is absolutely um, completely infused with racial logics.
1: Let's bring in Cedric from Fairfax to the show. Welcome.
6: Hello. (coughs) Yeah, I agree with the, uh, Doctor, that this is just uh, a white supremacy uh, problem. Period. Uh, everything else is just semantics. It's a talk of a of a free market. It's just a it's just propaganda. It's fantasy. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe Frederick Douglass said years ago that just because we defeated uh, the South in the Civil War does not mean white supremacy itself was defeated. And we would have to wait and see what it would morph into. And it's very agile at, um, at exploiting uh, people of color. Uh, But I had a question Mm -hmm. Uh, throughout this period, um, the HUD period, the thirties, the forties, the sixties and seventies, what was the role of black banks? Mm. Mm. That's Mm, a great great question.
2: question. (laughs) Um, This is, you know, there is an effort um, underway in the, the 1960s by uh, black real estate agents and by black mortgage bankers uh, to break through the walls of, of segregation. Because as I mentioned earlier, there's a recognition that with white people moving out of cities, um, that a new market, and new market possibilities are developing. Um, In cities. And so black real estate operatives and and black bankers uh, want a piece of of this of this market. Um, And so, you know, in places like Chicago, there are uh, I write about a person named Dempsey Travis who uh, helps to lead, you know, a boycott and protest um, demanding that uh, uh, black uh, mortgage bankers be uh, given capital from larger banks so that they can begin to lend um, to black uh, families. And this is accelerated uh, through the HUD Act um, in 1968 uh, because now we have low income uh, home ownership programs that make uh, many more uh, African American families eligible uh, for home ownership. Um, and so, what is interesting that happens in the wake of these developments is uh, you begin to have um, uh, some African-Americans who uh, speak out against uh, some of the anti, uh, um, some of the, they're not anti-segregation measures, but uh, who are concerned about uh, black people moving to suburbs um, because the concentration of black people uh, in cities also is part of what is constituting this new market. And so if black people are just moving, uh, black people with means are just moving into suburbs, um, then what will it mean for black real estate operatives who can't operate uh, in the suburbs because of uh, the racial discrimination that they have faced? Uh, as And black politicians, within... as you've noted yeah. also. Yeah. No, absolutely. So there, there becomes an interesting contest over... Uh, how to deal with uh, black suburbanization um, and uh, issues of segregation uh, in cities because that is the basis uh, for black political power, but also economic power, uh, the the concentration of black people uh, in cities. And so this becomes a very fraught issue in the 1970s.
1: You know, um, I, with our last uh, couple minutes here, I just wanted to ask you, uh, last minute really, sure. what capacity is the U.S. really lacking in making major housing interventions?
2: I I mean, I think it all comes down to the influence of the, the private sector. Uh, we have had a conception uh, of housing as under the dominion of the private sector, Um, for almost the entirety of the 20th century and certainly now into the 21st century. Um, And as long as that is the default logic that we leave it up to the private sector to produce um, housing, uh, then it means that, uh, you know, that will continue uh, to pervade. And the role of government you know, is being seen as just to uh, provide the incentives and sometimes the capital uh, for the, the the private sector to operate in the hu- in the housing market, and so it has taken itself out of uh, the the dimension, which, as we see, uh, is quite dangerous.
1: Yeah. We've been talking with Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who just won the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. She's a professor of African-American studies at Princeton, contributing writer at New Yorker, and the author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Homeownership. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate
1: it. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.